Thank you, Pearl. That was beautiful. Uh, the kids did a wonderful job of opening the Advent season for us, didn't they? It was just a, a, a great, great program. Uh, a church I was at a long time ago now uh, did a Christmas program every season, but it was a little bit different. It wasn't the kids that did the program. It was the adults. And it was a huge, elaborate ordeal. We'll put it that way. A uh, huge stage and set, and the set was on a turntable that connected to motors and cables, and it would turn, and there was elaborate costumes, you know, men in, in top hats and old-fashioned tuxedos, middle-aged women in tights and sequined leotards. It was special, so, and not in all the good kind of ways you would expect. It was, but this morning... This morning was special in all the right ways. Uh, children leading us in worship and song, reading scripture. It reminds me of the words of Jesus from Matthew 21. He's quoting the Psalms there, and he says, God has ordained praise from the mouth of children and babes. They did a fantastic job. A lot of hard work went into that. I- I'm expecting that all of the things you experienced this morning, from the time you walked in the door and saw the decorations, to probably even how you were greeted, to the, again, the songs and the scriptures you heard sung, just reminded you that this is a special time. This is Christmas. There's probably one part that stood out as it didn't quite belong, and that's Bob, uh, using the word antiphonal. What is that? I wrote that down. I have to go look that up. Now, the one part of the service, seriously, that might have stuck out is it, it doesn't quite belong was the scripture reading that went with the lighting of the Advent candle. Isaiah chapter 11. The Teese family did a fantastic job of reading that. Great job, kids. But if you were listening, there's no mention of the virgin birth, of a star in the sky, of shepherd or wise men. No angels, no manger, no baby. What you get instead in Isaiah chapter 11, the passage that was read, is language about a king ruling, a king establishing righteousness and justice, restoring the good. You get this language of a better world. So why do we read that the first Sunday of every Advent? Because at Christmas... We're reminded that God gives us hope, and it's a hope that comes in a very unexpected way. This hope is tied to a baby who is wrapped in swaddling clothes and lay in a manger. Imagine looking at an infant laying in a crib and saying, all of our hopes rest on you. The hope of humanity, of the cosmos, rests on you. I don't know if those thoughts went through Joseph's mind or not, but they could have. They probably should have. Isaiah 11 is is all about hope. This Sunday is all about hope. And I think that's really good. Because right now, I feel like I need to drink deep from a well of hope. The world needs more of it. I need more of it. And Isaiah focuses 
on this brilliant hope and draws our attention to three dimensions of hope. The first is a, is a vertical dimension to our hope. Our hope comes from God, a God who is faithful to his promises. God who is faithful to his promises. If God wasn't faithful, then the, our hope would be at best a wishy-washy, I hope so, if I'm lucky kind of hope. If God isn't faithful, then what's the opposite of that? Obviously unfaithful, but fickle, capricious, unreliable. Have you ever worked for a fickle, capricious, unreliable boss? Where your expect, the expectations change from day to day? The work you do on Monday is acceptable and good, but the same work on Tuesday is subpar and rejected? Really hard to please your boss. Really hard to have hope in that kind of a situation. I know as a parent, that's one of the quickest ways I can frustrate my children. Being unfaithful to my word, floating expectations. They never quite know what dad wants. They want and hope to please me, but they can't figure it out. Really frustrating. It's hard to have hope in that kind of a situation. But that's not the God of the Bible. That's the God of Greek mythology. The gods who are always deceiving people and reneging on promises and tricking people. That's not the God of the Bible. Our hope comes from a God who is faithful to his promises. Our hope comes from him. It doesn't come from our own goodness or some sense of, of progress. Our hope comes from God. Tim Keller, the author, pastor, theologian, I think, hit the nail on the head. He said, as Christians, we're not supposed to be optimists. We know too much about sin to be optimists. But we're not to be pessimists either, because we know the living God. We know our hope comes from him. We know he's faithful to his promises. The prophet Isaiah, in the passage that was read, draws our attention to the promises that were made centuries before his writing even, millennium before us, promises to David. God had promised David that he would establish his line, his kingdom, and his reign forever. It would be an everlasting kingdom. By the time Isaiah is writing, 250 years had passed between David and Isaiah. That's a long time. It's not quite forever, but it's a long time. And Isaiah's looking forward, and he says, David's line, it's going to be reduced to a stump. Not very hopeful kind of language, is it? But he's looking at the armies surrounding Israel and Judah, and he knows that God is going to judge, and he says, David's line is going to be reduced to a stump for a time. But our hope comes from God. God is going to raise up a shoot out of that stump. Now when you think of a, a shoot, they're tender, they're fragile, like a baby laying in a manger. But out of this shoot will grow a great branch that will produce fruit. There's a mild word of rebuke in that language that we read. 
Israel had not produced fruit. King David's line had not produced fruit. Political intrigue, gross sin, but not fruit. But God will. God will produce, raise up a shoot that will grow to a branch that will produce fruit. It comes from God. That's our hope, the vertical dimension to our hope. But there's a second dimension, the horizontal dimension to our hope. If your house is anything like mine, then everyone's got their Christmas lists. And on people's Christmas lists, at least in my house, there's different kinds of gifts. There's gifts that are going to be enjoyed individually, like a sweatshirt or a watch or a video game. But then there's kind of more family-oriented gifts that we all get to enjoy. Some years it's a board game. This year it's better Wi-Fi. We're all tired of it. It's just unreliable and slow. So I'm going to enjoy the new Wi-Fi system. So will the whole family. There's a horizontal dimension to that gift. Even that illustration fails because, frankly, I'm not going to share my Wi-Fi with my neighbors. But the gift that was given to and through Israel was to be shared with everybody. The hope that was announced to them was for them, but for the whole world as well. The Tease family read Isaiah 11, 1 through 9. Let me read verse 10. Verse 10 says, In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him. And the first words that were read, prophet Isaiah speaks of the root of Jesse, and he draws our attention to the promises that were made to King David. But now he goes even further back to the promises that were made to Abraham. Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel. But when God entered into a covenant with him, he said, I am going to bless you, and you will be a blessing to the nations. He spoke words of of promise and hope to Abraham, but they were words of promise and hope for the world. And you see that in this prophecy of Isaiah. There's a horizontal dimension, an unexpected wideness to the hope. This was not words of, you know, let's make Israel great again. It was much broader than that. It was for the world. You know, when we look out at the world, I think, especially right now, we see the world as a scary place. We see competitors, adversaries, maybe even enemies. But the words of hope that Isaiah gives us, I think, should incline us to see instead citizens of this eternal kingdom of God, or at least potential citizens of this eternal kingdom of God. It should incline us to see instead people who have been offered this hope just like we have. Now maybe that seems incredibly naive, Pollyannish even, I don't think it is, though. The words of hope that Isaiah records, that he writes, are sandwiched between chapters that are very realistic about the world. 
he talks to Israel about the impending destruction that has come in their way at the hands of foreign nations. But in the midst of those chapters, he still says, under Christ and his banner, nations will rally together. Nations will come to him, and there'll be justice and righteousness. That's the ultimate beautiful horizontal dimension to our hope. But it leads to the third dimension, depth. I know on any given day, my hopes are just, well, they're incredibly shallow. They really are. My favorite Christmas movie, I will make my family watch it four or five times this year, is The Christmas Story. Profound, deep movie. (laughs) Little Ralphie's hopes are tied to what? Red Ryder BB gun. Incredibly shallow kind of hope. The kind of hope you would expect a kid to have, right? Yeah, well, my hopes are usually just grown-up versions of a Red Ryder BB gun. They're more like Clark Griswold's hope in National Lampoon's Christmas vacation. He hoped for the bonus so that he could buy his family a pool. Still, a pretty incredibly shallow hope. Occasionally, my hopes will go deeper than those kind of shallow things. There'll be hopes for my kids that they'll be successful, that they'll be happy. Hopes for our nation that it'll heal. Hopes for the, the church. There'll even be spiritual hopes. Hopes that my kids, these are the deepest hopes I have. Hopes that my kids will, will know and love Jesus Christ. Hope that the, the church will, will grow spiritually deeper and, and wider. And hope that the nation will find a, a moral compass and be grounded. And those are deeper hopes. But even those deepest hopes I have pale in comparison to the depth of the hope that Isaiah calls us to. It is profoundly deep because it's not just for a renewed Israel or a renewed nation or a renewed church. It's for a brand new, renewed world. From top to bottom, renovated, restored, reconciled. It's, it's bigger than any hope. It's deeper than any hope I can imagine. Hope that all of creation will be redeemed. I, I think it even goes beyond just a hope that it will be restored to Eden-like qualities. I think it's a hope that will go beyond Eden to an even more perfect world. Deeper in communion with its creator. Isaiah says, the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth. There won't just be the peace of Rome. There'll be shalom. Perfect peace. How do we respond to this kind of a a hope that is held out before us in the prophet Isaiah and all throughout Scripture? First, I think we respond by evaluating our hope. Is the source of our hope truly God, or do we have some kind of side hustle going on? That was uh, Israel's problem at the time. Yeah, they would have said our hope is in God, but they were making all these side deals and allegiances with nations like Assyria. 
Yeah, we hope in what God is going to do. But not quite enough to bank on it. We hope in what God is going to do, but we hope in Assyria as well. Is your hope truly centered on God and God alone and in what he is going to do? Second, ask yourself, are you settling for lesser hopes? The book of Proverbs says that hope deferred or hope delayed makes the heart weary. And I know I can get awful weary and hoping for this grand kind of hope that God holds out for us. It it seems like it's been a long time in coming, and I'm still waiting and praying, and I know you are too, and it's easy to be tempted to settle for lesser hopes. To say, that's great, but you know what? I'm tired of waiting. I'll hope instead in this. I'll rest in this. Don't settle. Third, and this almost seems like a non sequitur in my mind, but this kind of radical hope that Isaiah calls us to should produce in us a desire to pursue unity. What? It's interesting. The book of Isaiah is quoted almost more than any other book. Not quite, but almost more than any other book in the New Testament. This chapter is quoted only once in the New Testament, and it's Romans chapter 15. It's in the midst of an appeal from Paul to the church to be united, to accept one another because we've been accepted by Christ who served both Jew and Gentile, who offered hope to everybody. And Paul's words are basically, in this hope you were united. So be united. All of this hope that we have, this hope for a new, renewed world, for a united humanity, a restored, reconciled humanity. At Christmas, we remember it it took a miracle. It took God condescending Not just to our level, but to the level of an infant to accomplish. He holds out this wonderful hope to us. And he does it, he does it in the Christ child. This season and then moving forward, I pray that our hope will be centered on the Christ child. And in all that God offers to us in him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. We thank you that into bleakness and dreariness, the light of your Son, Jesus Christ, shines and gives hope. We thank you that into sadness and distress and hopelessness, you reach down and give hope. Father, we pray that the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, the hope that we celebrate this morning as we sing, as we pray, as we gather around your table, would reorient us as we walk out of this place this morning. Reorient us and change our hearts towards you and towards our world. And in this, we will give you praise. In Jesus' precious name, amen.